All right, we are in 1 Timothy. Fight the good fight. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul now speaks directly to Timothy in the letter. Chapter 4 beginning in verse 6. It says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So I want you to imagine sitting in a restaurant and the waiter comes to bring your food, sets the plate down in front of you. That's what Timothy is is being told to do by Paul. Okay, So he says, put these things before the brothers, sort of like a waiter setting a meal before someone. So specifically, I want you to feed the church. And I want you to feed the church as you have been fed, Timothy. So as you have been trained in the faith, as you have been trained in good doctrine... I want you to serve that to your people. That's my charge to you. And that is the nature of discipleship in the kingdom of God. I've come to believe that the best teachers are also the best students. Because you cannot give what you do not have. And there is no teacher of the word that comes up with things because they're smart or extra gifted or, you know, there's no insight that comes from man that is of any value. You cannot serve what you have not eaten. And that is the nature of discipleship. So what specifically is on the menu? Paul says the words of the faith, also known as good doctrine. Okay, so the Bible tells us what God wants us to believe, and how God wants us to live. And that is the menu, Timothy. That's what I want you to give this church. Give them good food to eat. But then he says there's also junk food out there. Verse 7. He says, but have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Okay, That's the junk food. Bad doctrine. False religion. Okay, what's a myth? Well, a myth is a religious story that sounds good, but it's not real. Right? There's no real value. But as we know, in this world, people will believe almost anything if they think it has value. Right? Or if the right person serves them the meal, Someone that they love listening to or someone that they've grown accustomed to or that they trust, they're going to eat it up no matter what's being said. And Paul says, I want you to have nothing to do with this silly teaching. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise For the present life and also for the life to come. She noticed the word godliness. That word 
only shows up 15 times in the New Testament, but it occurs nine times in 1 Timothy alone. Okay, So more than half the times that word is used by anybody, it's used by Paul in this letter. And simply put, godliness is a way of life. It is a way of living. It is a a way of living with a spiritual orientation. So if you take this and you put it together with the previous metaphor, what Paul is saying is that spiritual training is very similar to physical training, but of course it's of more value, right? So how do we train ourselves physically? By eating good food and by exercising, right? Stay away from the junk food and get off the couch. That's how we train ourselves physically. And so Paul says, I want you to pursue godliness the way an athlete pursues fitness. As a way of life. I want you to build and strengthen your awareness of God. I want you to grow both in your knowledge of Him and your commitment to Him. I want it to be a lifestyle. I want it to be a commitment. So we've talked before about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Okay, Some people pursue fitness because of the intrinsic value. They like the way that they look when they work out. Or they like the way that they feel. Or they like the personal health benefits of knowing that they're, they're eating healthy or they're living healthy, right? But there are others that pursue fitness because of an extrinsic motivation. They're doing it to win a sporting event or to win a competition. Or, for instance, a soldier might train to be better at combat, Or a fireman to be better at his or her job, right? And so that's an external goal. They're doing it for a purpose beyond themselves. But I want you to notice that Paul says that godliness is of value in every way. So there are personal benefits and there are external benefits in this spiritual training. Specifically, he says there are present benefits and future benefits. And we're going to come back to those in a moment. But first, I want to ask you a question. Does all of this sound a little bit like legalism? Train yourself in godliness, Paul says. Train yourself in godliness. Now, the truth is, I think, gospel-centered Christians get a little nervous around verses like these. The emphasis is, is on, clearly, behavior and works. And so words like godliness make us nervous, especially if our background or our former church experience like mine 
involved a lot of works righteousness, right? This is what good Christians do. And if you're not doing these things, okay? So if you're a little nervous about what Paul is saying right here, you're probably in good company. It's an important thing for us to talk about because words like discipline and training and obedience and godliness, they're all over the Bible and not just the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul talks about them more than anybody else. So these are not bad words. These are Bible words. These are sanctification words. Of course, the order is crucial. And so I actually love, uh, I saw this this week and I thought it was great. I love how R. Kent Hughes explains this. He says, underlying much of the conscious rejection of spiritual discipline is the fear of legalism. For many, spiritual discipline means putting oneself back under the law with a series of draconian rules that no one can live up to and which spawn frustration and spiritual death. But nothing could be further from the truth if you understand what discipline and legalism are. The difference is our motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. Right? To get God's attention. To get His blessing. But the disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and because I want to please Him. That's a big difference. There's an infinite difference between the motivation of legalism and discipline. And so motivated by the gospel, as my brother-in-law prayed a moment ago, because he first loved us, Paul tells Christians to pursue godliness. And there are reasons. He says because living the way God wants us to live is actually good for us. And it's good for other people too. It's good for the world. It matters how you live. It matters first why you're living that way. Okay? Not to get something from God, but to give something to Him. Not to earn something. And yet, it is good for the world for us to live a godly life. Verse 9, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, if you remember, the last time Paul said those words, he finished it with this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That was in chapter 1. And so that was then a simple statement of the gospel that was being offered in humility. But now he uses the same exact phrase and he's encouraging Christians to pursue godliness. Okay, so gospel first. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm saved by grace. But now he uses the same phrase. Says, I want you to pursue godliness. Okay, 
Maybe that's because faith without works is dead. Maybe that's because even the Apostle Paul, who was the greatest champion of the gospel message, knew that. That how we live matters. Verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So right there, you see the motivation, right? Why do we toil and strive? Because we have hope in a living God who is our Savior, who is the only Savior. But notice also that he says toil and strive, right? Those are words of vigorous Exhausting effort. Why? Because our efforts to live a godly life have real implications for how we fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus Christ, we believe, is our only hope. And He's the only real hope of this world. And because we believe that... Because we believe that, we pursue godliness. Because the Apostle Paul says that it has something to do with our mission. And we're going to see that more clearly in the next few verses. Verse 11. He tells Timothy, I want you to command and teach these things. Okay, Not just teach them, I want you to command them. And then he says, teach these things. He actually says that phrase eight times in this letter. What things are we supposed to teach? Well, I think it includes the centrality of Jesus. Okay? The grace that we talked about in chapter 1. The repentance, the acknowledgement of sin, all of that. But it also includes all the other stuff that Paul has said in this letter. And some things that he has yet to say in this letter. Including all of the difficult stuff that we have talked about that challenges 21st century cultural norms. Okay? And we've had some some tough sermons, right? That have been difficult in terms of the way we think about things as a culture. And Paul says very clearly, I want you to command and teach these things. And now he gives Timothy three specific instructions concerning his ministry. Number one, verse 12. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So he says, Timothy, I want you to be an example. I want you to be an example. I want you to let your example speak for itself. Okay, so underneath this is the idea that it doesn't matter what other people think about you. Ultimately, he's saying, I want you to take the high road. I want you to live for an audience of one. Okay, so God's opinion of you is all that really matters. But if you're doing that, then your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity will show itself. Okay, so show us your faith. Don't just tell us your faith. Second, verse 13, Paul says, until I come, 
Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading, preaching, and teaching of Scripture. And that's why we do this. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. Not because I think it's great for you to hear me talk, but because Scripture has commanded that the church focus its attention on the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And third, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. We don't know exactly what gift the Apostle Paul refers to. It may have been something, uh, it may have just been a teaching gift, could have been something else. But what happens to him, this council of elders laying on of hands, that sounds a lot like the way we do ordination. Okay, this is what we do in the Presbyterian Church. We give a charge, we lay hands, we pray. Um, and that's how we ordain somebody. And then verse 15. Finally, Paul says, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Practice these things. So, I think 22 years ago, something like that, NBA star Allen Iverson made headlines. Uh, and if you remember who he is, this may be the only reason you even remember him. He's a great basketball player, but um, he's become known for this press conference. And at the time, he was in conflict with his head coach, Larry Brown, because he wasn't showing up to team practices like he should have. And this is what Iverson said. He said, I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're sitting here talking about practice, not a game. Not a game. We're, we're talking about practice. Not a game that I go out there and I die for, and I play every game like it's my last. But we're sitting here talking about practice, man. How silly is that? Probably got to be my age to remember that, but it was pretty funny at the time. And so Iverson goes on in this interview to say the word practice 22 times. And his coach, Larry Brown, responded after the press conference by saying, Iverson said the word practice more times than he showed up for practice. <laughs> and listen, I sometimes wonder... If this has been my attitude and the attitude of a lot of Christians when it comes to the idea of pursuing godliness, okay? We think to ourselves, well, Jesus already won the battle, right? That's what the cross was. And that's true. But then you come to the conclusion, well, so why do I have to do anything? I mean, Jesus won the battle. He died in my place. I've been given His righteousness. All of that is true. That's the gospel. So now why do I have to do anything, right? If I'm saved by grace, if it's finished like we talk about and sing about and study about, then why do I need to put in any effort? What's the point? That's practice. But Paul tells Timothy to practice doing the things that God has called him to do. 
He says, immerse yourself in them. Why? Because the church needs to see the progress of her leaders. And the world needs to see that something's happening in the church. The world needs to see that the gospel that we believe, that we preach, has the power to actually change people's lives. Not just the power to theoretically change lives, to one day, hopefully, maybe someday make a difference. No. Jesus cares about seeing His people change now. Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Galatians 6.9 Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Right? So these are, this is... This is, of course, gospel-motivated effort. It's not self-righteous effort. I can't say that enough. But it is effort nonetheless. It is effort nonetheless. The encouragement to practice also presupposes that we have visible flaws. Let me say that again. If he's telling us that we need to practice it, it means that we're not there yet, right? That we're not good yet, right? Perfect people don't need to practice, right? Which kind of sounds like Iverson's argument. He's basically saying, I'm so good, I don't need to practice. And we're not saying that. We're saying the opposite. We're saying we're so bad at this, we need to be practicing, We need to be thinking and praying and doing. And that's not the attitude that Paul encourages here, right? Is that we're so good as Christians that we don't need to practice. Of course not. Instead, we know that we are all a work in progress. I need practice because I have a long way to go by the grace of God. Verse 16. Finally, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, a lot of talk about what that last phrase means. I'm just going to simply say that's not a that's a that's a practical theology statement. That's not a systematic theology statement. Okay, so we know Paul's not telling Timothy go save people. Timothy has no power to save anyone. We believe that Jesus alone saves. Okay. But Jesus has chosen to use our efforts in His ministry to lost sheep. We are instruments in His hands. And so that raises the stakes here. Remember I talked about those um, benefits, right? This is why Paul says... That our pursuit of godliness has value in this life and in the next. 
God's church is the means that God has chosen to, to use to draw people into the kingdom. He's using His church to accomplish His mission. And there's no plan B for that. Like, we're it. This is what He wants to happen. This is what He's doing. He'll do it with or without this group. But He's going to do it. And He's going to use His church. And so, our efforts in ministry bear fruit by God's grace. And it's important because souls are actually at stake. He's actually using us to do something that has a lasting impact here and now and in the world to come. And remember, it starts with prayer and it starts with repentance. And so let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask You to help us to keep a close watch on ourselves, to keep a close watch on the teaching of this church, the teaching that we consume. Would You keep us fixed on Christ Jesus? Would You help us to trust more fully in Your grace? We pray that our faith and repentance would bear fruit such that we would more deeply believe, more closely follow, more intentionally practice our godliness. That we would motivate it not as a, as a way to twist your arm into giving us what we want or to, to, to be blessed by you. We've already got everything in Christ. And so I pray that you would motivate us to to do these things for Your glory, that we would commit ourselves more fully to Your Word, more fully to worshiping together as a church, more fully to serving in this church, serving one another, serving our community, seeking to reach people for Christ. Lord, wake me up. Wake us all up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.